Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is episode number 56, the 1919 Bible Conference, part 3. Last time we talked about how the 1919 Bible Conference was the first real scholarly meeting in Adventist history, how the General Conference President A.G. Daniels thought these scholars might help resolve Adventism's identity crisis in the wake of Ellen White's death. And in the course of that episode, we talked about the widening gap between church leaders and church members in understanding a number of issues. We talked about how the Bible Conference dealt with Bible translations and the Trinity among other things. Now, I want to begin this episode by mentioning something about the Trinity. You see, one of our listeners was puzzled by something I said in the last episode. I said, and to quote myself, many Adventists believed Jesus was divine, but not eternal. That is, Jesus was created at some point, end quote. Now, the listener was quick to point out that she had never heard of that idea. She had never heard that Adventists believed Jesus was Created, And she herself is somebody who does not believe in the Trinity. Okay, so I will admit I could have worded that better, but let me explain. Merlin Burt, an Adventist historian who is awesome because he knows things, but mainly because his name is indeed Merlin. Anyways, he divides the history of Adventist non-Trinitarianism as pre-1888 and post-1888. Pre-1888, Bert argues, Adventists seem to think Jesus was created. But the only real example I'm aware of was Uriah Smith, who indeed said that Jesus was, quote, the first created being, end quote. Now, after 1888, with this new emphasis on Jesus and on righteousness by faith, Bert says that non-Trinitarian Adventists began to think of Jesus as the only begotten, not created, and He uses Uriah Smith as an example here as well, because Uriah eventually stopped believing Jesus was created. Now, there are a couple of people at the 1919 Bible Conference who seem to still think he was created, so don't take this kind of division of history as a hard rule, more of a general framework for understanding this issue. Anyways, Daniels took the conversation off the record about the Trinity, and one exasperated attendee said, quote, I feel we are discussing something we ought to wait 60 billion years before we start on, end quote. The point of this being, whether you believe in the Trinity or you don't, you can arrive at those conclusions in different ways, and many Adventists back then did. Everybody who was non-Trinitarian wasn't non-Trinitarian for the same reason. Everybody who was Trinitarian Well, sometimes they had different ideas of what it meant to be a Trinitarian. So I hope I can make some amends by clearing this up for our dear listener. Or maybe I just made it worse. I don't know. I tried. Let's move on. With the Trinity done, we're going to cover one of the other major discussions at the Bible conference, Bible prophecy or prophetic dates. The best kind of date you can go on because you already know how it's going to end before you begin. Anyways, prophecy was a big feature in 1919 because, as we've said before, the whole world seemed to be changing, and that led to some questions about traditional Adventist beliefs. After all, 1919 was the 75th year since 1844, so it's probably a good idea to take your theology in to get an oil change every 75 years. Now, Adventists are known for how they interpret several key prophecies in Daniel, like the 1260 days, the 2300 days, and the 70 weeks. 
If you've ever been to an Adventist prophecy seminar, you have heard Adventists talk about these things. And you probably remember that one of the two huge issues in 1888 was A.T. Jones and Uriah Smith going toe-to-toe over the ten toes, I mean ten horns, of Daniel 7. Get it? Toe-to-toe over the toes. Yeah, I know you got it. Nice job. Anyway, Smith thought the Huns were one of the ten horns. Jones thought it should be the Alamanni, and we went over all that. So why do Adventists care about these ten horns? Well, because in Daniel 7, the ominous little horn arises in the midst of these ten horns. And on his way up, the little horn plucks up three of the ten horns. So if you believe the little horn is the papacy, which, of course, Adventists did, then you're looking at the rise of Roman Catholicism to see which three of these ten kingdoms the papacy managed to destroy on its way up. The overthrow of these three kingdoms, these three horns, marked the beginning of the important 1260-year prophecy, which Adventists believed to be describing a period of papal domination in history. So traditionally, Adventists started this at 538 AD, and it would last until 1798, when Napoleon imprisoned Pope Pius VI. If you tooled around with the Ten Horns too much, then it might change when you begin the 1260-year prophecy, and this is important. Adventists were far more confident about Napoleon's capture of Pius VI in 1798 than they were about the events of 538, and I suspect that's the reason even the progressive Adventists didn't want, in the words of Prescott, to, quote, abandon the eights, by which he meant 538 and 1798. The eights, get it? You might be surprised at the openness of the conversation they had. I mean, the attendees were committed to being historically responsible. And the conservatives in 1888 weren't willing to second-guess themselves. But the conservatives in 1919, well, they led the discussion. And when three of the progressives, Prescott, Herbert Lacey, and Harry Washburn, were unwilling to consider abandoning the eights, it was a conservative, W.T. Knox, who urged them to chase after the truth no matter where it leads. And that's when one of the funniest moments of the whole Bible conference happened. Prescott saw the irony of the situation. He had been accused for years of being this liberal trying to destroy Adventism. And we'll get back to you next time, Claude Holmes. Anyways, here Prescott was arguing with the conservatives, not to tear up the tradition, but to defend it. So he spoke up, quote, I would like to be understood as being conservative, end quote. And the attendees busted up laughing. Seriously, the stenographer noted in the report that the delegates were laughing at that one. And it's a reminder that labels like conservative and progressive aren't always very sticky. Anyways, Prescott then delivered his very conservative philosophy of change. Quote, I do not think we should be looking around for opportunities to change what we have taught. We should start with the idea that this message is a true message and we are not here to tear it down. That is my position. End quote. Prescott balanced that thought with this one. Quote, I stand here because we have taught a thing does not prove that it cannot be changed. And when we see clear light, we should advance in the light. End quote. Now, the delegates also dealt with the daily. This controversy proved to be so hot that Daniels insisted it not be talked about unless he was in the room, probably with a fire extinguisher. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, I know we've talked about the daily like a half dozen times. But I can't for the life of me remember what that was about. Don't worry, I got you. 
All right, the daily issue. It came from Daniel 8, where it says that the little horn removed the daily. And after the little horn removes the daily, well, the Millerites noted that a transgression of desolation follows. Okay, so the Millerites knew the little horn was the papacy, the popes. But what did the popes remove? Well, Miller thought it was the, the daily desolations of pagan Rome, the group that burned down the temple, killed Jesus, and persecuted Christians. Okay, what was pagan Rome replaced with? When pagan Rome was taken out of the way, when it was destroyed, what was it replaced with? Well, the answer to the Millerites was Christian Rome. James White summarized early Adventist views on this subject when he said, quote, The daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation represent Rome in its pagan and papal forms, end quote. And then Daniel hears a voice. How long will all of this go on? And the answer that he is given is 2,300 days or, or years as Adventists understood it. So this topic of the daily was connected to the 2300-day prophecy, so that made it very, very, very important to Adventists because pop quiz, wherever it is you're sitting or standing right now, when did the 2300-day prophecy end? I'm waiting. 1844, congratulations, you're a winner. No, no, not you, the other one. Yeah, you're a winner. What do we have for him? We have no prizes, I'm sorry. Conradi had led the way into a new view of the daily, abandoning this uh, paganism thing in the 1890s, which Prescott and Daniels eventually adopted. And in this new view, the daily referred to the daily intercession of Jesus in heaven. I called it a new view, but you should know that it had its origins in the Millerite movement as well. So the new interpretation was this. Daniel is predicting a time when the little horn would remove Jesus' daily intercession, or at least try to remove it. And this is really important because in many of your Bible translations, it will say something like the daily sacrifice. And you should know, as the Adventists and the Millerites back then knew, that that word sacrifice has been added into the text by various Bible translations to tr hopefully make it a little bit clearer. But, but those Adventists knew that that word wasn't in there, so the daily what was the question. The daily what was the question. So in this new view, it was the daily intercession, that, that priestly ministry of Jesus. And so they're looking for the little horn to remove or try to remove the daily priestly intercession of Jesus for us. Conradi and Prescott and Daniels, of course, saw the Catholic priestly sacrifice called the Mass as a counterfeit of Jesus's priestly role in heaven. I mean, you were encouraged to confess your sins to a priest, not directly to Jesus, and I, I think you get where they were going with this. Prescott's personal project was to place Jesus at the center of Adventism, and that's why he bought into the Trinity, right? And that's one reason why he was attracted to Conradi's view of the daily, because it seemed to be putting Jesus in the center of things. Now, Ellen White had refereed the daily controversy and told the kids to knock it off in 1908. She lowered the temperature of the debate for a while, and it kind of just moved underground. Instead of featuring on the pages of the Review or Signs of the Times, you'd find people discussing it off and on in personal letters. But now that Mom was gone, 1919 proved to be a time everyone felt safe talking about it again. There wasn't a huge fight over the daily at the Bible conference, but it was an occasion for Prescott and Daniels and Lacey to calmly and rationally explain their views, including one of Prescott's articles explaining his view on the daily. This proved to be a turning point in some ways, because the more they talked about it, the more it became clear that the daily was only really what Gil Valentine calls a storm in a teacup. 
simply because Ellen White, back in 1850, made a comment that seemed to affirm William Miller's interpretation. That is, that the Daily was about pagan and papal Rome. So for many of these conservative Adventists who wanted to do battle over this issue, the issue really wasn't Daniel 8. The issue was really the fact that Ellen White had put her stamp of approval on this interpretation, and to have a different interpretation would be to, to undermine Ellen White. Okay, So they dressed up in their armor like chivalrous knights, and they were there to defend Ellen White's honor. Ellen White, like many a modern woman, thought she needed no defending, just move on, she told everybody. It's, it's no big deal. Her defenders like Haskell and Holmes, along with Prescott on the other side, refused. Nay, we shall defend our lady. Men be men, you know. So I'm not bringing up the Daily because there was some fantastic progress on that front. It's not like that everybody just said, oh, we now agree with each other. But I think the progress that was made was in the fact that the attendees seemed to be able to have a civil conversation about it. And it eventually led to this issue not being an issue at all. Because a few decades later, George McCready Price wrote, quote, I do not know of a single Adventist college in America which now teaches the view that the term daily means paganism, end quote. Funny how that works out. But the daily discussion was connected to the even more controversial discussion of the Eastern question. So let me talk about that for a moment and I'll tie this all together. Ah, uh, the Eastern Question. Yeah, what was that one about again? The Eastern Question concerned the interpretation of the King of the North and the King of the South in Daniel 11. Daniel 11, of course, is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible to interpret, which is probably why right now in Adventism in America there are so many Daniel 11 conferences popping up where everybody's got their hot take on it. So naturally, Adventists back then interpreted it they got every single symbol, every word, every turn of phrase. They had an interpretation for all of it. And I want to make this one statement before you roll your eyes, because as I read the transcripts of these guys discussing this stuff, I realized, man, if I had a time machine and went back to debate with these guys, I'd get blown out of the water. I mean, I think I've learned some things that they didn't know, but man, you have to admire the tenacity with which they studied the Bible. I mean, these guys were methodical. They may have been wrong on this, that, or the other, but boy, did they know their Bible in a way that I don't, in a way that many of the Christians around me don't, and that's impressive, most impressive. So Uriah Smith said the king of the north was Turkey and the king of the south was Egypt, and because the chapter ends with the king of the north being destroyed, well, Avenus had come to believe that World War I would likely witness the destruction of Turkey after Turkey invaded Palestine. Of course, World War I didn't quite go like that, though Turkey, or the Ottoman Empire, was definitely beaten up and left for dead. Conversations about the Eastern Question at the 1919 Bible Conference centered around this old view and the new view being proposed by progressives. It's pretty much the same story as it was with the Daily and other issues like the view of the Seven Trumpets of Revelation, which they also discussed, but we're not going to get into. Anyways, one attendee presented the defense of Turkey as the king of the north, while another, Lacey, presented the new view. Now, Lacey traced the history of this chapter, noting that William Miller interpreted it one way and Uriah Smith another way, and now it was time, in Lacey's opinion, for a better way. It was time to think of the king of the north as the papacy and the king of the south as Islam. 
Now, you'll notice two things immediately with this new view. First, that it, like the daily, places the papacy in the center of things. Second, that it broadens the interpretation of these symbols. We're not talking about a specific nation anymore, but two religions. This reflects a trend that has continued in Adventism until today. A steering away from being too specific about how Adventists interpret some of these prophecies. In any case, the whole affair proved controversial. Surprise! And Daniels stopped the stenographers from writing too much about their discussions. What we see, however, in all of these issues is this common thread, this, this gap between conservatives and progressives. And it's not just in the issues, it's in the hermeneutics. This philosophy of interpreting the Bible and how much each side gives, gives weight to the context or, or how much of history they want to introduce, how much of culture they want to introduce, or the language studies they do, all of these things impacts the outcome in every single situation. And we're going to talk way more about this in the next episode. So I want to tie all this up with something Daniel said, because a lot of these discussions about prophecy were, were really discussions about permission. Uh, let me tell you what I mean. Prescott summed it all up in a question he asked the room, quote, are we at liberty to differ from thoughts on Daniel and still be regarded as sort of orthodox in presenting our view? End quote. This is such an important question. It's, it's a question that really exemplifies where Adventism is at in this moment in time. Thoughts on Daniel was, of course, Uriah Smith's work. His thoughts on Revelation and thoughts on Daniel were later combined into what we've been referring to as Daniel and Revelation. And, of course, you've heard me say how monumentally influential Smith's work on Daniel and Revelation was. And that's why Prescott is asking, are we free to disagree with Uriah Smith and still be considered good Adventists? Now, I don't think Prescott was asking this question because he didn't know the answer. I think he knew the answer, but sometimes you need to get that question out loud. And it had a strategic element for Prescott as well, because essentially this man who had been nearly beaten to his spiritual death by Adventists like Claude Holmes was saying, this isn't a controversy over the Bible. This is a controversy over Uriah Smith. I mean, is Uriah so sacred and so saintly? that we cannot take a view different than what he held? Herbert Lacey added a worthy thought to this whole topic as well. After noting that, hey, William Miller was wrong about some of his interpretations, Lacey said, quote, Before there was a real study of the whole question, Uriah Smith, having the field, crystallized the presentation which we accept traditionally, and there is a psychological law there, end quote. Now, what does Lacey mean? He, he's saying hey, we never sat down in a Bible conference to talk about our interpretations of prophecy. We inherited what we have from Miller. And then Uriah Smith came on the scene, and it's not like anyone checked his work. He had the field, right? He had the room. There was no one really to challenge him. There was no one as well-studied as he was who could possibly disagree with him. And because he was the first, there's this psychological law here at work. I mean, the book that has been around for so many years... How do you challenge that? How do you challenge a pioneer? How do you tell him that he's wrong? That book's been around forever. In another place, Lacey had said this about Uriah Smith, quote, We are the descendants of those who have accepted this interpretation without question. We revered thoughts on Daniel, end quote. And that's when Daniels stood up. Daniels reflected Prescott and Lacey's concern that, in Lacey's words, 
we are trying to get on absolutely solid ground. And Daniel's lamented how easy it was for Adventists to change the reading of the biblical text to fit some historical reality. Or, I may add, it's easy to shape the way we tell history in order to match the Bible as well. These guys didn't want to do any of that. They hadn't gathered for that. They were trying, as Lacey said, to get on absolutely solid ground here. They were trying to update their position to strengthen it, not to weaken it. Anyways, Daniels went on, quote, Somebody said the other day, Now Great Britain has given Palestine to the Jews. Suppose the Lord comes and the Turk doesn't get there. Well, I hope to get to heaven even if the Turk doesn't get to Jerusalem. And I reason I won't be much more surprised than the one who looks up to see the Pope get there. End quote. And attendee then spoke up, Can I say a word? No, you can't, Daniels replied. He goes on, quote, I was going to say, I have been free to speak on this because I have believed it to the roots of my hair. I don't believe that I believe it because it was put in Daniel in Revelation. I believe I hold it on other ground. But I am not ashamed of Daniel and Revelation, nor the writer. I have no derogatory word to speak of that great and good man who wrote that book. God will cover his mistakes just as he did William Miller's mistake, and he will cover my mistakes if I am wrong, because he knows I have been honest. End quote. Daniel's response was responsible. He kept everyone focused on the big picture. And when it's all said and done, he told attendees, what matters for Adventism the most prophetically is Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And Daniel's had never felt more confident on how Adventists interpreted those chapters. In these discussions on prophecy, we see that these people like Lacey Prescott and Daniel's, what they want most for Adventism is first, the ability to openly ask questions in a safe environment. Second, a willingness among Adventists to keep growing, to keep improving their beliefs by connecting them to the latest historical and biblical scholarship. Then third, a humble acceptance that we might be wrong about something. This is essentially the, the progressive platform in 1919. But there's a conservative cap on them. Because Daniels was clear about his conviction that he applied these values, these progressive values, to ideas within the traditional range of Adventist thinking. He did not believe, for instance, he didn't believe anybody was free to start teaching evolution in the church, because that was something that was very much outside of the Adventist tradition. Perhaps we can roughly sketch out his view as a, a healthy liberalism within some fairly conservative boundaries. But anyways, let's not get caught up in the labels. I, I trust you see the picture I'm trying to paint here. Well, we're going to leave it here this time and talk about the 1919 Bible Conference one final time in the next episode where we will tackle the issue that was really underneath all of these issues, the nature of Ellen White's inspiration. So we will see you next time. This episode of the Adventist History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music, reviews, videos, and more. So to check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology, and puppies. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is 
evidencehistoryproject.org or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Evidence History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Evidence History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.